Morning, everybody. How are you today? Nice to see you. Nice to have those of you here that are with us in person. It's always great to see your faces. And for those of you who are joining us at home, we always want to extend a welcome to you. And uh, if you're here for the first time, we're really glad you decided to join us. We are a couple weeks into a brand new series in the study of Genesis. And so I invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Or maybe even better, uh, you got one of those Genesis journals when you came in. You may want to open that up. It's a great place to just sort of record the things that God may say to us uh, through the, the course of our study. As we come here to, uh, to Genesis chapter 1, I want to begin by even just sort of noting something about our culture. If you, if you have your phone with you this morning, if you have your phone, pull your phone out. And uh, I, want you to, I want you just to take your best, see if you can, just right where you're at, whether you're at home or you're in here, see if you can take your best selfie. What do you think? Can you do that? Can you get a good se- Are you good at selfie? How many of you are good at selfies? Oh, that's a, that, is, that is really sad. There's one guy, one guy right there, good at selfies. Everybody else, not so good. We, we live in kind of a selfie culture, don't we? And some of us are good at it, some of us are not. What's the idea of a, of a selfie? Everybody know what that is even? I'm, I'm guessing most of you at this point know what a selfie is. That's a, that's a picture you take of yourself. And we live in a culture now that's a little bit obsessed. In fact, I'm not endorsing this because it can turn the corner to idolatry really fast where we start to sort of focus on ourselves. But what is it that's happening with a selfie, whether you're good at it or not? Uh, what's happening is that you're doing your best to try and reveal something about yourself, right? You're trying to reveal something about yourself in that picture. So people use their phones and they take a picture of themselves. And, and a lot of times those pictures are posed or poised. You know, they got it all set up with the right thing in the background. They got to take it from the right angle so your double chin doesn't show. You got to stand a little bit to the side. I know what you're doing, right? When you turn to the side a little bit and you bend one of your legs, I know you're trying to make yourself seem like you're a certain, you know, proportion, whatever. We're working really hard to reveal ourselves in a certain way. We want to reveal ourselves in a way. Now, I will say with human beings, when it comes to selfies, a lot of times what we're trying to do is not reveal ourselves with accuracy, but maybe with something uh, like super, something a little bit better than accuracy, right? We're trying to reveal ourselves in a way that makes us even look a little bit better than we are. One of the things that drives my wife crazy about me is that if I'm, when I'm traveling on a trip, uh, I always want to FaceTime with my wife. Now, my wife would be perfectly happy to just do phone calls. In fact, she would prefer phone calls. But I like to see her, especially if I've been gone for a week or whatever. I want to be able to see her. And so we'll do FaceTime. She, she will concede to do FaceTime with me. But inevitably, um, she, gets, she gets sidetracked by looking at her own picture. You know how when you do FaceTime, you can see your own picture? And then she's looking at her. So she's not looking at me anymore. She's looking at the way she looks. So all of a sudden, I can see her. And she's kind of, she's she'll change her eyebrows. You know, she'll raise her eyebrows up bigger. She'll turn her head one way or another. And I can tell she's trying to reveal herself in the most beautiful way. She looks beautiful no matter what she does. I can tell. But in the process of trying to get just the right image reflected to me, I'm taking all these screenshots of the intermittent faces. You know what I'm saying? And then I will send back to her faces where she's sort of like not quite in the pose that she wanted, but kind of halfway there, maybe one eye half open and one, you know, like whatever. And she hates that. I got a bunch of those on my phone. If you want to see them, come see me later. I will show you. I have quite a collection of uh, sort of mid-pose photos of my wife. She doesn't like this story, by the way. Just, you can tell she doesn't like it. But the idea there, what, what is it that she doesn't like about that? Well, she doesn't want to be misrepresented, right? She doesn't want to be poorly represented. She doesn't want to be revealed in a way that is less than acceptable uh, or less than true of who she is. And the same thing is true of God. Now, I'm not saying that when we come to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the end of the sixth day of creation, that God is taking a selfie. It's not apples for apples here, right? So that illustration only goes so far. But when we come to the end of the sixth day, it's interesting to note that there are some distinctive things that are happening that are different than the rest of the whole creation narrative. 
Last week we looked at Genesis uh, 1, verses 2 through 25. Now we get to verse 26, the end of the sixth day. And Dan read it for us, but let me just read it for you again. It says in verse 26, after, by the way, God on the sixth day had created all the creatures, right? He created all the animals and the lizards and the things that scuttle about the earth, right? It says then in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Those two words, by the way, image and likeness are synonymous. That means the same thing. If we try and make a distinction there, we do a disservice to the text. Those Those words are essentially synonymous. He says, let us make man after our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God creates men and women in his image. That's what happens here at the end of the sixth day. The text we're studying this morning that we want to reflect upon is when we were created. And there are a couple of things I want you to note in the distinctions even that we see here. A couple of things I want you to see right, right from the get-go. It's important to understand that we are creatures, right? That we ourselves are not the creator. We are distinct from the creator and that we were created by him. So if you're taking notes, maybe if you've got uh, those last pages at the end of your journal, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, there was a page that I recommended maybe you write down, uh, who am I, right? Who am I? Well, creature might be one of the words you put there. I'm a created being. I am created just like all of the other things that have been created. I am not God. And in fact, I am not like God in that way because God is not a creature. He's not created, right? So there's a distinction there that's important and worth noting, but it's also worth noting that as a creature, there is a hierarchy here, right? We, men and women, human beings, are the pinnacle of creation. The story is ordered in the way that it is, and it's organized in the way that it is to say something specific about our value, to say something specific about hierarchy, to say something specific about our distinction, We are the pinnacle of creation according to this order, and that's important, especially for the time in which Moses would have been writing this to the people of Israel at the time. They, as we talked about two weeks ago, were living with contemporary creation myths, not the creation reality, but the creation myths. And some of those creation myths, when they talked about human beings, they referred to human beings as cast-offs or as refuse, or as garbage, right? Some of those contemporary myths that the the people of Moses' time would have been hearing would talk about creation and say, well, we're basically the God's garbage, right? And so now, as the Spirit of God inspires Moses to lay out the creation truth, one of the things he wants to speak against is the idea that you and I might be a throwaway, or that we might simply just be another kind of animal. We are not like the rest of the animals. We are created distinctly. We are not God's throwaway. We are not cast-offs. We are the pinnacle of his created order. We're the last thing that he creates, and he does so with distinction. This is important. It's important that we understand that we are precious to God, that we're different than the rest of the created order. And one of the ways in which we see here distinctly that we are different is that we are the only ones who are said to be made in God's image. In God's image. The animals are not created in the image of God. The mountains and the sky and the sea and the atmosphere, none of that is created in the image of God. There is a distinction in this story that is only said of you and I, men and women, that we are made in God's image. 
We also, in this text, see divine intent in a way that we don't see it in the rest of the creation story. What I mean is, in every other case, when he creates something, he says, let there be, let there be light, or let there be stars, or let there be animals according to their kinds, right? It's always a let there be, and it is. We talked about that last week. Let there be, and it is. And God saw that it was good, right? But when it comes to us, there's divine intent. There's a distinctive. Listen to the way he talks about mankind. He doesn't say, let there be man or let there be humans. He doesn't say, let there be men and women. He says, let us make. And there is a distinctive there, an intention, a personal intention to do something that's different than just speaking things into existence. We see the the contemplation of God. We see the process of him evaluating what he's going to do in a way that stands apart from the rest of the creation. We see divine intent. We see intentionality, even just in the little phrase, let us make, as opposed to let there be, right? So a couple of key distinctions here. Not only do we see that, we see uh, something specific with regard to the divine image. So here are just a couple of little overview things, but At the time period in which this would have been written, again, when Moses wrote this for the people of Israel as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, they would have lived in a time period in which there were kings and and there were pharaohs, right? They had just sort of famously in the last 40 years or so come out of Egypt and the pharaohs were known for saying of themselves that they were the physical image of God on the earth. And they would build statues, and they would build monuments, and they would write inscriptions that declared themselves to be the physical image of God upon the planet. But it was reserved for royalty. It was reserved for the pharaoh. It was reserved for the king or for the queen in these different uh, pagan cultures at the time. So the people during the time period in which Moses wrote this would have been uh, associated with the idea that there potentially were people on the planet who were in the image of God, but they were only the special people. Does that make sense? They were only the powerful people, or they were only the wealthy people, or they were only the ones who, who were sitting on thrones. So when God inspires Moses to give us the creation truth, not a myth, it's important here when God says, let us make man in our image, that what he's saying is that the image of God is not exclusively held by those in power, and not exclusively held by those with wealth, and not exclusively held by those who can control armies. That the image of God is something that's been rested on the shoulders of Everyone, I want you to see the equality of that. From the very beginning of this story, God is saying to us, my image is represented not in one kind of person or in one state or in one class or in one race or one language or one region, but he's saying, if you're a man or a woman, you are made in my image across the board. I want you to see the equality of it. Get your arms around the equality of that. It's important. Every one of us is an image bearer. And it doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account or how much power you wield or what people think about you, what level of education. All of us as image bearers. That is something that's done intentionally here. One last little side note I might want you to see, and, and I say side note because we're going to get into some of the deeper meaning of the text, but other things that are distinctive or important to kind of get when you're sort of framing this text. It's also important to think about this. During the time period in which Moses wrote this, there would have been pagan temples and pagan houses of worship. And those pagan temples and pagan houses of worship, much like the pagan houses of worship in our world today, would have been filled with statues and idols, right? Carved images, things made out of gold and bronze and wood and stone, fashioned into the form of the pagan god that that temple was meant to represent. 
they would have been very familiar with these pagan places of worship, both from their time in Egypt and from their time of wandering. They certainly would get more familiar as they went into the promised land and saw the pagan forms of worship that were happening there. They would have been familiar with images of God meant to convey something of his presence and something of his likeness and something of his power, right? These gilded images. So it's interesting to note that the people of God were the one people group that were expressly forbidden from creating images, right? Second commandment. You can look at Exodus 20. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but our God has specifically said to us, I don't want you making any images of me. I don't want you carving any statues of me. I don't want you representing me in a physical form because I am God and there is no other and my power cannot be represented in that way. But first and foremost, what God is trying to say to us and what he was saying to his people through this creation truth is that I don't need the idol and I don't need the wooden statue or the stone statue or the golden statue because the earth is my temple and I have already filled it with my representatives. Does that make sense? God doesn't need the idols. He doesn't need the statues. He doesn't need any of those representatives because we are his image. We are those images. That's why the people of God were forbidden from making those. And that's uh, in addition to the fact that those can be centers themselves for worship. There's lots of debate when we look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. There's lots of debate over what exactly it means that we're made in the image of God. We want to be really careful that we don't make a common mistake. One thing that can sometimes happen with people when we start thinking about being made in the image of God is we go, okay, well, if I'm made in the image of God, then there are some things we can know about God. Number one, we know God wears glasses, right? We know God has a beard. We know God is bald and has tattoos, right? So right out of the gate, here's some things you can all learn. I'm made in the image of God. And so you can learn some things about him by looking at me. We want to be really careful about the way we do that, right? As you, you laugh even as I give that illustration because you know that can't possibly be true, right? It can't possibly be in the text that when it says God chose to make us in his image that what he means is he's got, you know, two arms and two legs, right? That his mouth sits underneath his nose and his nose sits right above that. And then it's like, like we, don't, we don't want to go so far in thinking about the image of God that we start to say, well, then you have to look a certain way or that God is a reflection of me. We've talked before over the last four years about the idea that many times when we try and fathom who God is, our best guesses about God are just uh, related to who we are on our best day, right? We think, oh, God must be me at my best. And that isn't true, right? God isn't just the best human being you've ever met. He's not just the pinnacle of human thought or human consciousness or human understanding. God is above and beyond those things. He is not a reflection of us. We want to be really careful that we don't recreate God in our image. But we recognize that we are created in his. Right? So there's a, there's a way in which that information flows. There's something about the image of God. And theologians debate about it. There are books that have been written about it. I mean, I will tell you, you can go down the rabbit hole on what the image of God means. And there are lots of different interpretation and lots of different theories and lots of different ideas. But at the end of the day, the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Because that's something that's unique to us in all of creation. At the end of the day, what we're asking is, what does it mean to be human, right? What does it mean to be human? That's the question. To be made in the image of God, which is distinct only for humans, we're saying, what is it that's unique about us? And some of the ways that gets answered, people will talk about... Um, you know, when they think about the animal world or the animal kingdom, they'll think, well, about our own self-consciousness, our self-awareness, our ability to be aware of God, our ability to know God and to have a relationship with him. They'll talk about the existence of our soul. There are some things that we see as being distinct from the animal world or from the physical world uh, with, with regard to nature. 
And so they'll go, well, that must be what it is. That must be what it is. Uh, the image of God means we have a soul. Well, I think that's a part of it, right? That's a part of what it means to be human. Or they'll say, well, it's our self-consciousness, or it's our self-awareness, it's our morality, right? When you think about the rest of the created order, there doesn't feel, uh, it doesn't seem like there's a logical morality to it, and yet there is that. Well, okay, I think that's a part of it, but I think we make a mistake in thinking about what it means to be made in the image of God. We make a mistake when we reduce it to any one of those things, right? When we reduce it, we boil it down to it just means we have a soul. I think we've missed something broader. So this morning, what I want to say is that as we evaluate or as we think about, as followers of Christ, as we think about what it means, the privilege that it is to be made in the image of God, that we give ourselves room to evaluate that broadly, right? To evaluate it broadly. I want to give you three broad categories, three broad categories this morning to process and think about what it means to be image bearers, to be the image bearers of God. Three broad categories. And my three broad categories this morning are relationship, representation, and reflection. Relationship, representation, and reflection. They didn't have to start with R, but maybe that makes it easier for you to remember. Let's start with, uh, let's start with relationship. One of the things we understand about God, not just from Genesis, because you'd have a hard time making this case distinctly out of Genesis, but remember, we don't just read Genesis. We talked about this two weeks ago. We don't just read Genesis in isolation. Genesis is a part of God's revealed word, right? So we read Genesis in light of the totality of scripture. We see the way it all connects. In fact, I encourage you at one point to have a page at the end of your journal where you showed links to other places in the scripture. Well, we understand from the totality of scripture that God is Trinity, that God is three in one, three distinct persons in, in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is revealed to us in the totality of scripture. We see it alluded to here in Genesis 1, 26, don't we? When he says what? Let us. God said, let us make man in our image. There's a plural there. And, and you might go, oh, there it is. Irrefutable proof of the Trinity in Genesis 1. Well, it's not irrefutable proof of the Trinity in Genesis 1, right? That's, you can't quite take it that far. But what is it? It's certainly a signpost pointing ahead to the greater revelation of Trini- Trinitarian theology that will come later. It certainly isn't the royal we. I've heard people say, oh, well, this is the royal we. If you just look at history, uh, the royal we doesn't come along until much later. We famously know of Queen Victoria who would say, you know, we do not approve or we do not like this or that, right? That, that didn't come till much later, the royal we. So this isn't about royalty. There are some who have said that when God says, let us make man in our image, that plural there has to do with him speaking to his angelic counsel. And that is probably a part of what this is, but it's also worth noting that we've been told very clearly that we are not made in the image of angels. So it gets a little funky when you start thinking, well, is God looking at the angels and saying, let us together make man in our image? We're not made in the image of God and angels. We're made in the image of God exclusively. So we look at that and we go, well, he's, he's pointing to something else. My point in all of this is to say that from the beginning here, we see God existing in relationship. We understand that God exists in perfect harmony and love and relationship and unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That that's not something new upon the scene, but that is a part of who God is fundamentally at his core. He is love and harmony and peace and unity as demonstrated in his very character. So it's interesting when we talk about being made in the image of God, the very first sort of broad category, a broad overview I'd want you to see is that God has created us in his image for relationship. Because he is a God who is of relationship in and of himself. That we were not meant to be lone rangers. That we were not meant to exist in isolation. We'll see that in Genesis 2. When God will affirm the fact that we need one another. 
But right here in this section, it doesn't just say that God creates humans. And I want you to see the importance of this. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about why does he create gender here in Genesis 1? Why man and woman? Why male and female? Well, there is, there is God doing something. When he says, let us make man in our image, part of what it means to be image bearers of God is to manifest or to represent God existing in loving relationship. That's why in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he'll say this. John 17, 20, Jesus says in his prayer, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. There Jesus is praying for us, right? The church in 2021. He says, I I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Okay, listen, that, that might feel really convoluted and confusing, but what is Jesus praying? Jesus is praying that we will be relational, that we will be in harmony and in relationship both with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in perfect harmony timelessly. They invite us into that harmony and into that unity, but then in, incredibly, we also have harmony with one another. Harmony with each other, harmony with Christ, relationship with Christ. Why does gender exist? This is the question I'm, I'm looking at. Why, why male and female? Why doesn't God say, hey, let us make man in our image. Boom, there's, there's a guy or there's a woman or there's a creature. And it's just one gender. Why are there two? Well, is this important? Because from the very beginning, it was God's intention to display something or to put on display something about his relational image in our unity Peace, care, and affection for one another. Relationship is one of the ways in which we bear God's image. That's what I want you to get. God is relationship with himself. And relationship was built by God when he created us by making male and female in our unity and in our affection and in our harmony and in our unity, in our ability to not be divided, but to be united. We bear his image because that's what God is like as well. That's why all diversity exists, by the way. God doesn't just create one kind of person. He doesn't just create one group of people. He creates a whole menagerie of people. Different tribes and languages and tongues and peoples, different, all kinds of expression. Why? Because in our unity and in our care for one another and in our affection, we put on display the unity and affection and care of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for themselves. That's what diversity is all about. Gender was created by God. To bear his relational image in unity, peace, care, and affection. Now, we don't get this right. Unfortunately, we have marred the image of Christ. Because instead, what's happened is that tribalism raises up its head. Or racism raises up its head. Or sexism raises up its head. And we find all kinds of reasons to go, well, actually, the way in which the image of God is represented in my race, or in my language group, or in my sex, or whatever, is superior to somebody else for whatever reason we've sort of added. The Bible doesn't do that work. That's wickedness. That's sinful. That's not here. There is no division. In fact, what we were created for was harmony and diversity to bear the image of God. Now, it is worth saying here that, that there are two genders, which is a, a source of much, much contention in our world today. You guys don't need me to tell you we live in a world that's full of pain and full of brokenness and full of hurt. And we have people in our world today who are confused and pained and broken about gender. They don't know where they fit. They don't know wh- where they line up. 
Sometimes they do that because of things they've experienced. Sometimes they do it because of the way they feel. Sometimes they do it because of the influence of culture. The worst thing that happens, though, is that when this gets broken and when it gets confused and when people in their pain and hurt and confusion start to go, well, maybe there aren't two genders. Maybe there are four. Maybe there are 20. Maybe there are 50. Our inclination is not to come alongside those people who are confused and hurt and broken and love them and be with them and unite with them and find harmony with them and care for them. Our intention or or, or sometimes our response is to judge them and to divide, which is the exact opposite of why gender was created in the first place, right? The key for us in our world when it comes to gender, the Bible unequivocally says that there are two, right? That there are two. It's not a bunch. It's not fluid. But at the same time, we live in a world where there are people who desperately are looking for someone to love them. And in the moments that we decide to stand on that truth, that there are two genders and no more, as a way to push people away, we have missed the heart and intention of God. The call here is to, is to wrap people up who are hurt. Is there anybody in the room that isn't hurting and broken, by the way? No. All of us are hurting and broken. All of us are confused about some things. All of us get it wrong some of the time. And so when we divide and we, and we shut people out because they're broken and confused and hurting, we missed an opportunity to bear the image of Christ in a broken and fallen world. Diversity is an opportunity to display the relational nature of God. And our worth is rooted in, in a God, our God-designed equality as image bearers, not in any of the superficial things that mankind has used to justify division. Our worth, let me say this to you individually. I want to try and look in your eyes. Your worth and your value is not rooted in your skin color or how much money you've got in your bank or where you were educated or not educated. It's not, it's not connected to whether you're married or unmarried. It's not connected to any of those things. Your worth and your value is rooted and solely established in the fact that you were made in the image of God and no one can take that away. And not only is that true of you, it's true of every human being on the planet. That every human being on the planet is made in the image of God and therefore fundamentally and foundationally has value apart from any of the things we would use to divide ourselves from them, right? I think about how, some, how, how frustrating it could be when you see someone burning the, the American flag, right? If you've ever seen an image of someone burning the American flag and there's a thing that stirs in your heart and it, and it kind of makes you frustrated. You know why that happens? Because the American flag stands for liberty. It stands for this country. It stands, right, for justice and hope. And when people burn it, you go, no, 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 that stands for something. That represents something. You don't burn that, right? And yet, men and women made in the image of God, his visible representation on the earth, when those people are shamed and hurt and and have violence perpetrated against them and segregated and abused, they are representatives of God on earth and our hearts don't stir to the same place they do for a flag. But they should. We should fight for the dignity of people because they are all made in the image of God. Our worth is rooted in our God-designed equality as image bearers, not in any of the superficial things that we sometimes use to justify division. That's the relationship aspect of our being image bearers of God, that we are bearing his image in our relationships and our care and affection and love for one another. Secondly, we bear the image of God in representation. In representation. It's interesting, back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, one of the things he says about us that he doesn't say about any of the rest of creation is that we are called to have dominion. There he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, right? 
What's he doing? He's investing his image bearers with authority. He's investing his image bearers with responsibility. He says, I want you to have dominion over this creation, right? He's created all these beautiful things. And then he says, I'm placing this in your charge. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are called to be his ambassadors, that we're called to be his emissaries. We are his visible representation on the earth. There is both uh, great dignity and great humility that comes with this assertion. So follow me here for a second. There's great dignity in it, in it, in the fact that there is no other part of the creation that is given this responsibility. There's no other part of the creation that was made in the image of God or for whom God affirms them to be very good, as we'll see next week. We, we stand unique among the created order as those who are given dominion, those who are sent as ambassadors for God. And there's a moment there where you go, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool that I'm not just an animal, that I'm not just part of the created order, but I am a representative of God. But before you let your chest get too puffed up or before you let your head swell too big, recognize that there's also humility comes, that comes with this because we don't want to lose sight of the fact that we are his likeness, that we are his image We are not him, right? You see the difference? So one of the things that's made distinct, if we were all little gods, right? If all of us were just gods, he wouldn't have to tell us, hey, I want you to have dominion, right? And I want you to fill the earth. I want you to be my representatives. Because if we were all little gods, that would just be our responsibility. This would all belong to us. The fact that he has to stop and say, I've created you in my likeness and I want you to take on some of my responsibility by, by its very uh, statement implies or, or sort of states emphatically that we aren't God. We're just his emissaries, right? So there's a dignity. There's a moment where you go, wow, of all creation, I'm creating his image. I'm given some of this responsibility. But there's also a moment before your head gets too big that you go, I'm not God. I'm just, I'm just made in his image. I'm just his ambassador, his representative on the earth. We are his representatives, his ambassadors, and often we try to live as if we ourselves are God rather than his likeness. The clearest view we ever get in the scripture of what it looks like to be a representative for God is in the person of Jesus Christ, of course. In fact, John famously has said, you know, no no one has ever seen God, but the Lord Jesus has made him visible. So Jesus comes to the earth, and what does he do? One of the things that Jesus does, in addition to dying for our sins, Jesus comes and he shows us what it looks like to be an image bearer, right? Jesus lives a perfect life. He never fails to glorify God in thought, word, deed, and attitude even once. And in doing that, what he's doing for all of us is he's saying, if you have a question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? If you're asking the question, what does it mean to be human? How do I live this life? How do I interact with other people? What do I say and where do I go? Jesus says, let me give you a demonstration. And he is a perfect, infallible image bearer. So when you and I are wondering, how do I bear the image of Christ or the image of God in relationships or in representation, our first answer should be to go and look at Jesus because he does it perfectly. And in fact, in the world in which we live, uh, people are rapidly running away from evangelical churches, right? You, you, if you've read any of the stats or you've read any of the reports, I think, we're down to, uh, I think we're down to 47% of people in America now identify as being part of a local church, which is down from 68% only, only 20 years ago, right? So it's, it's moving rapidly, people moving away from churches. And when they talk with these people and when they sort of dig in a little bit deeper and go, hey, how, how, come you're not, how come you're not a part of a local church? It isn't that the people that are abandoning the church have said, well, I don't believe in the Bible. No, they still believe in the Bible. It's not that they're saying, well, I don't really believe Jesus is the son of God. No, they still believe that. It's not that they, that they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead or that he doesn't have the power of resurrection. It's not that they've lost their theology. The people that are abandoning the church aren't saying they don't believe those things. They're leaving the church saying that they don't think we believe those things. 
Because they're looking at our representation and they're finding that our representation of Christ falls short of the revelation of Christ we see in the scripture. We have work to do to put him on display in a way that's accurate and true. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses one and following says, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we did not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice uh, cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that verse. God reveals the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ out of us. How does the world see an accurate picture of Jesus? How does the world see an accurate picture of what God is like? When we represent him well. And representing him well does not mean acting like little gods. That would be a misunderstanding. Acting like little authorities unto ourselves. If we look at the message of Jesus and we look at the model of Jesus, then to bear the image of Christ is to suffer and sacrifice for the good of others. To give ourselves away. That's the way we paint an accurate picture of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49 says, But as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Right? Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's a process we're in, right? When we talk about bearing the image of God as his representation, as his visible representation, recognize that sin and brokenness, it mars our revelation of Christ. But the great news is that the Bible tells us that he is conforming us to his image over time. We're in process. So the more we stay committed to that and the more we understand that as image bearers, we're not only demonstrating something relational, but we're demonstrating something representational that God's power will come to bear in us and we will put Jesus on display in accuracy. That's when we talk about uh, revolutionary kindness, when we talk about radiant peace, we talk about prophetic engagement, when we talk about unforced appeal, all of those things at their heart are, are the idea of living like Christ for the glory of God, which is in our mission statement. Living like Christ for the glory of God. So we see in the image broadly, in the image of God, what does that mean? Well, number one, it means that we put forth and put on display the relational aspect of who God is. Secondly, we are his representatives, right? We're his ambassadors on the earth to come and live a life like Jesus lived. And then third and last, we're his reflection. That, that God's glory is revealed in us. Something interesting about God, you may have heard uh, the Westminster Confession that says the, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I, I don't know if you've thought about the fact that the chief end of God is the same. The purpose of God or the work of God is to glorify himself. And in fact, God with intentionality does everything he does to glorify himself. And that seems prideful if you were to put it in a human person. Like if I spent all of my time trying to glorify myself, you'd go, this guy's got a problem, right? But when it comes to God, it's perfectly appropriate. It's not wrong for God to seek to glorify himself because he is everything and he is God and there is no other, right? 
But God is intentionally always seeking to glorify himself. Interestingly, the Bible also tells us that all creation glorifies him, right? Uh, You look at Romans 1 and it says that what can be known about God has been revealed to them in the things that have been made. All creation glorifies God. What that means is the mountains and the trees and the wind and the sky, the rain, all of those things glorify God. And they glorify God incessantly, right? So always nature is glorifying God. It's always singing the praise of God. But here's the catch with nature. Nature, while its glory of God is incessant, it is unintentional. See the difference? So it goes on and on and on. Anytime you walk outside, you look at the mountains, feel the, breathe the air in this room, and, and you go, yeah, there's something wonderful about God that's revealed in his creation all the time. But that beauty and that glory is not intentional. It's just incessant by the nature of the fact that the mountains sit there and speak of their creation all the time. One of the interesting things about us being made in his image is that unlike the rest of the created order, so puppies and kitties and ostriches, all of those things, they glorify God all the time, but not with intention. Just by their design, you look at them and go, look at this incredible animal. Look at this incredible world. Look at the beach and the stars. Wow, look at it. It's always glorifying God, but not with intention. You and I, what it, one of the things it means to be image bearers of God is that he's given us the opportunity to glorify him intentionally. Intentionally, like he does. God glorifies himself incessantly and intentionally. Nature glorifies God incessantly and unintentionally. And you and I, alone in creation, have been given the opportunity to glorify God intentionally and somewhat incessantly, right? We glorify God in the fact that our our circulatory system works and whatever else. But there is this beautiful opportunity for us to think about every moment, to think about every word that comes out of our mouths, to think about every place we go and everything we do, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we raise our children, the way we interact with other people. All of that holds potential glory for God. And that's what it means to be in his image is that we can choose with intention to glorify him. Now, the the negative side of that coin is that by giving us the option, he also creates the potential for us to reject the option. Adam and Eve, we'll see in a couple of weeks, had the opportunity to glorify God in their obedience to his command. And they chose to glorify themselves in disobedience. By giving us the option to glorify him in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes, he also creates the potential for us to worship ourselves or to worship our own tribes or to worship our own fame or our own power, to worship our political parties or to worship our neighborhoods or to worship our whatever. And in that moment, we've taken the opportunity to do something that only God does, which is glorify himself intentionally. And we've rejected it in service of ourselves. The precision and intricacy of his design is beautiful and glorifies God. But the ongoing ability to praise him is something of what it means to be made in his image. The creation declares something of its creator. I'll finish here. Actually, I want to invite the band to come back up. You and I are all uniquely made. If you're thinking about who you are, you and I are all uniquely made. We're loved by God, included by God, empowered by God, and invited into a life of relationship with God. Here's the thing. We don't want to walk away from, from a study like this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and just feel some things about ourselves. We also want to take all these things that we're realizing and understanding about ourselves from Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and realize it unilaterally with every other person that's in this room and every other person we've ever met and every other person that exists on the planet, that what is true for us is true of them. So I wrote here at the end, we must see this image in others, 
even when they don't see it. And we must work to see them realize it and to see it realized in them. That part of what it means to be a representational and a reflection of God's glory, to be in relationship, is to recognize that the world we live in, not everybody understands they've been made in the image of God. They have, but they don't themselves even know it. And so part of our work as ambassadors is to come along our brothers and sisters, our fellow men, no matter where they come from, no matter who they are, and to help them realize that their lives also must be built upon God, built upon the identity that God gives them and not their own. We have the opportunity to reflect God's love by representing God's invitation into God's relationship. As we sing this next song, I'm going to invite you to just sort of lean into a moment of response. Covered a lot of stuff. I move really quick. I know how that goes. But I hope that in the next moment, you would maybe even, in a, just sort of a physical representation, this, maybe right where you sit, maybe on your, on your knees, just kind of open up your hands and allow God to speak over you that you are his daughter, that you are his son, that you were made distinct from all the rest of creation, that you were built from the ground up to display something of the relational nature of who God is, to be his ambassador and representative upon this planet and to reflect his glory and his love back to him and to others with intentionality, something the rest of the creation cannot do. Will you just receive that And then evaluate the ways in which that changes your interaction with others. Let's sing this song together and respond to God and the truth of this reality.